Welcome to the Decolonization in Action podcast, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, science, and the arts are being decolonized today. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and I'm broadcasting from Berlin, Germany. This is season four, episode six, where I spoke with Shay Akil McLean, who is a queer, trans, masculine, and genderqueer man racialized as Black on stolen Indigenous land. Shay Akil is an educator, organizer, writer, public intellectual, human biologist, anthropologist, and sociologist. Shay Akil earned his PhD from the UIUC School of Integrative Biology's Program for Ecology, Evolution, and Conservation. Shay Akil also studied Dubosian Sociology, STS, Racism, Human Health, Demography, Evolutionary Genetics, and Theoretical Population Genetics. He holds degrees in Biological Anthropology and Sociology, which he uses to study bioethics, medical ethics, philosophy of biology, population genetics, evolutionary theory, health inequities, and knowledge production. As a scholar, Shea Keel shows how systems of human practices produce the differential distribution of health, illness, quality of life, and death. He's also the founder of the free political education website, Decolonize All the Things, and the free scientific ethics website, DecolonizeAllTheScience.com. In this episode, we discuss history, W.E.B. Du Bois, Darwin, sociology, and reparations. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited, uh, too, because I've always enjoyed the conversations and stuff that we have. And, and of course, given the nature of the work we both do, this kind of stuff is exceptionally timely, mm-hmm. given everything that's going on in the world. Absolutely. And one thing I want to kind of begin with is as a historian, and I'm very much interested in how people link up science and history and specifically uh, questions around race and racialization. And in a recent expose by Elizabeth Hinton, she noted that, quote, it sounds corny, but history was always part of who I am. And I feel that Black people often subvert the stories that we've been told, but we also find ways of building and empowering ourselves with those stories. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about some of the histories that you were taught early on in your um, upbringing? Yes, I mean, one of the things that I, and it's funny that you you asked this question because it's something that I've been reflecting on a lot lately, just thinking about the basic stuff that I know from my elders, the stories and stuff I was told as a kid by my family. Um, for instance, one of the, the things that I came to understand uh, as a kid, and my aunt used to say it, my grandmother would every now and then would hear people making a comment about it, where uh, we uh, where they say oh, originally we weren't originally slaves here. And I was just like, okay, I was really confused by the narrative for a long time as a kid. And it wasn't until, you know, getting into, you know, undergrad and in grad school, and especially with uh, still one of the fields that I've studied um, uh, being anthropology, biological anthropology, uh, I was very, very much interested in kind of like hearing more about that with regards to my uh, family ancestry. And it wasn't until um, later into my adult years where I basically came to understand and I asked more questions, like asked my grandmother, some questions and stuff before she passed. And it was basically what they were explaining is that, oh, 
um, the person they can trace everything back to, um, uh, which is my like great, 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 great grandfather. His parents and people were brought to the States from the West Indies. So basically from, from the Dominican Republic. And I'm like, that's Haiti. Let's be honest. That whole, that's Haiti. The Dominican Republic is basically what happened when half of Haiti, the white Spaniards decided they wanted to try to make slavery again. That's how the Dominican Republic was created. It's Haiti. So, <laughs> so that's where, um, like that part of the lineage of my family, uh, came from in regards to um, the Sharad genealogy. And I learned more and more over time. Like uh, with the, uh, a family reunion we went to, I went to in 2018, was reading a little bit more into some of the documents and stuff we have in my family. And, and it's interesting too, thinking about it, like the kind of like the patriarch of our family and everything is traced down from his lineage. That, that um, plantation wasn't just any plantation, it was a breeding plantation. And it was infamously known for um, being capable of breeding bucks, big, like brawny black men. And practically that's every man in my family. <laughs> so like all, all of us are practically, we're built, all, everybody's tall, we're all shouldered. There's, the women in my family are tall. Like, <laughs> so just being able to have the context that I have now as uh, an adult, as well as a, as a scholar, given the work that I do, it really says, it, it says a lot with regards to providing perspective on not just what the story is, but also how it's told, whose narrative is centered in the first place, and then how that fits into the larger, the relative and larger stories of society and, so, and, and history. Because it's so easy to get lost in the typical narrative, especially that people of African descent in the United States uh, have to deal with. With the oh, we don't have any history. Nobody knows. Oh, I don't know where my people are from. I'm like, I'm like lying. Everybody's lying. You know where they're from. They're from West Africa. If you want to know, and that's one of the things I'm like, I try to explain this to people consistently. I'm like, here's what's one thing that you know white people keep receipts. They keep receipts for everything that they purchase. You really think they ain't got no receipt for your grandparents, your great, 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 great grandparents? They do. It's called the Colonial Archive. You're going to find there's a docket somewhere with somebody in your family name in it. Look, they know where they took us from. <laughs> it's hidden in the archive. <laughs> like, And in most cases, it ain't hidden all that well because there are scholars who already did the work to expose it. The first chapter of Black Reconstruction by Du Bois actually details where a good chunk of enslaved Africans came from. You want to know, you can You can read just the first 10 pages of that book. So it, it's one of those things that I found to be really, really interesting in the sense to where a lot of the narratives of racialization and how they're uh, reproduced and perpetuated, especially today, um, it, they're done so in a way that, that uh, produces uh, the possibility for uh, marketing things like ancestry tests, putting people in a position to where they give away their biological data to the state to, for them to misread what it means in the first place, because that's not how any of this works, and then put themselves at risk because of that, as well as other family members, to get a narrative that they can't even verify. 
and a narrative that does not match uh, evolutionary uh, history, mm -hmm. uh, let alone their family, let alone uh, our larger species. So I, it's really interesting thinking about the importance and significance of kind of like some of the narrative and stuff that I heard as a kid and kind of like how they've come to to transform in a number of different ways as I've aged and learned different things. It's something I think that is also, it's difficult for most um, people of African descent, like especially in, in the US. These ain't cute stories. If we look at the media, you know, diversity and inclusion, what stories are they telling right now? Slavery, all of his slave stuff. And it's, and it's like slave fan fiction, chattel slave fan fiction. None of it's based on actual history. They don't actually tell us what they did and what was going on, but they create these parodies. So now the suffering of our people has become entertainment in a, in a whole different realm. And this is supposed to be diversity. One thing that I appreciate about your work, so first of all, congratulations on being a doctor. You defended your dissertation in the fall of 2020. Thank you. And that's so exciting, especially since um, there's a plethora of wonderful Black Studies scholarship, whether it's um, Catherine McKittrick's uh, recent book, mm -hmm. Dear Science, uh, Chanda Prescott-Weinstein's mm -hmm. book on astrophysics yes. and on um, and Black folk. Yeah. People are really engaging. I got that right on my desk. <laughs> people yeah. are really engaging in new ways of telling stories about Blackness and science. And in your dissertation, you looked at how Du Bois meets Darwin and you disentangled how race as a social construction has become a mantra in the U U.S. context and how how shifting notions of biological conceptions of race are something that we need to unpack a bit more. And I, I think what's so exciting about your work is that you, your focus on Du Bois and kind of putting him against Darwin allows us to unpack him, not just as a sociologist, but someone who can contribute to science studies. Um, how did you come about doing that work? And why did you see this as an intervention that was necessary in black studies and, and science studies more broadly? It's really interesting because I, because whenever I tell, like I talk about my work, it, I feel like there's so much of it that's like, I didn't do much, like there's some of it I did on purpose, but a lot of it, I didn't end up here exactly on purpose because my original interest when I started graduate school was to uh, study human osteology. And that is the, the, the base, the main thing that I was interested in, even though I was in a, a uh, one of the few four field anthropology departments that exist in the US. <laughs> um, so I studied as many subfield as I could because it was also part of our program. But um, my main interest was in studying human osteology and health. And given the experience that I had where I was uh, pushed out of the program, the PhD program, at uh, the University of Buffalo, uh, begin, it was because the, uh, I, after, after I def, uh, passed my qualifying exams and stuff, and then I defended my proposal, the committee, all white committee, because there was no, there were no biological anthropologists who weren't white in the department at the time. Uh, I was told that uh, uh, I had a conditional pass and the condition was that I, uh, updated and, uh, and redid my proposal to in project to account for the biological differences between blacks and whites. So that's kind of part of what kind of just put me, I was like, oh, okay. So given that experience and having to do all of the fighting, then I had to, to get to 
another pro to a program that would allow me to do my research work and like to at least to some extent and leave me alone um <laughs> i basically took from there and expanded on looking deeper into philosophy of science philosophy of biology and uh reading generally reading like history and historical analysis sociological analysis a lot of that stuff was part of stuff that i was doing um as a component of my just political education just continuing political education and um because also because I mean, the, the programs and stuff that I've been in, they don't teach you about this stuff. You got to read this shit on your own. Like, they don't really teach you anything. They teach you about old dead white men, which I'm not interested. So, I like, I do what I need to. I have to, you have to, reading outside of class is crucial. It is not, it's not a, it, it's not an extracurricular. It's the foundation for me, in my experience. So, it was around, I think it was around like 2016 exactly, was when I was, digging more closely into Du Bois um, in the sense to where I was returning to things that I had already read, but I was returning to them with a different perspective. Like I had more context and different knowledge. So I was returning to that and finding some stuff of his that is not as well read. Not as many people read the stuff. So like I ended up reading like this his dissertation, uh, going over some of his early publications um, like the, there's one article he wrote, in, I believe in 1898, which is after he finished his dissertation at Harvard. Um, and that one is on the Negro problem. And, and that paper is actually, it has a number of different significant components to it, but that it was that. And there's this uh, other piece that he wrote that was never necessarily, it wasn't initially published in the newspaper, but it was written as a small piece of a critique of scientists, specifically sociologists, and seeing basically him talking about uh, their general fear of the physical sciences and the natural sciences and how that made no sense. <laughs> and how basically the whole notion of the social separate from the natural sciences makes no sense, basically. Um, being able to come across that work and then also Come uh, take the time to kind of reevaluate everything, especially in the context of understanding like where the hell, because everybody says race is a social construct, but where the, the core of the idea and the core of the some of the first forms of the argumentation and the structure of the evidence that was presented, where did it come from? It came from the boys. Mm -hmm. So uh, going back through his work was extremely helpful with grounding a, a number of different components, but also most importantly, Du Bois doesn't just simply, there's a lot of work in especially American sociology where they theorize with no historical uh, grounding about when it comes to race and racism. It's very odd when you think about it, but it's something that is pretty, un unfortunately, standard and pretty typical. Um, du Bois did not do that. There was history everywhere, <laughs> and he had like to, he had he had receipts to everything. And one of the things that I appreciated about that work is that it provided a lot of context, and I started to to see and understand it. I, quite honestly, is from a position of like an evolutionary biologist and geneticist, though that all of that information that the boys was providing was contextual information to tell me about the environment 
What is what kind of environment are people dealing with and living under? What kind of relationships are they dealing with in everyday life? And how did that how is that affecting their uh, their health in the material world around them? And uh, so at the same time that I was doing that, studying with uh, the voice of it focused, and that was when I uh, uh, was working on my second master's degree in sociology, because I really was focusing on comparative historical sociological uh, work and like uh, philosophy of science and biology. And that was when I came to, also at the same time, I was taking a crap ton of like, evolutionary theory like the math stuff <laughs> like and then going gis courses all, all kinds of then at the same time when the program that i was in they didn't have stuff that i necessarily wanted so i set it up so where i could find a way to where i could take the classes that i knew i needed to do the work that i wanted to do even if they would they would they would tell me it wouldn't count for anything and i was just like eh, whatever okay i just need to get what i need to get done and it was coming to learning at the same time more and more and more in more in depth about like theoretical population genetics and evolutionary theory i was good and i was doing reading these things at the same time and i started and i could see the thing the the similarities they were overlapping each other very easily and one of the things that i started to do then was look into who was talking to who networks who knew who, who, like, was there somebody at a period of time that could have been close or like, uh, or, or around somebody who was in connection to, uh, for instance, to Darwin, um, but it was a couple degrees removed from Du Bois, like looking at that, looking at the relationship between as well, uh, also Dewey and Darwin. So it's a number of different theories, like, and that will tell you a lot. I think there's a component to a lot of scholarship that we kind of we ignore very easily and that's the human part that you know people be knowing each other and that actually does affect how they do their work like 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 shocker and i pay close i try to pay very very close attention to that for instance there are connections between one of the first black women to get a master's degree in biological anthropology at harvard she ended up using a collection that was at howard and one of the people who was in the study she did is Du Bois' daughter. Mm. Like simple little things like that, like putting the pieces together like that. So, and the connection I think had to do with between Du Bois and William Montague Cobb. Uh, so like paying attention to that helped me get fuller context for a number of different things to see who was talking to who, who's in what circle. And also what was happening with regards to different ideas and concepts within these circles. But I remember I didn't, I remember it was a certain point where I didn't have a title for the dissertation. I just like, it was, I was, I, and I was just like, oh, whatever. And I was, I was like, I don't have a title. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. And um, I was more, I had a title for the master's thesis, uh, the second master's thesis, but not the dissertation. And it was late 2016, early 2017. I came up with the Boys Meets Darwin. And my advisor was like, I want you to hold on to that because I think people will shit their pants if you said that. <laughs> I was like, I don't care how many people shit their pants. Like, honestly. So <laughs> he was like, I think a lot of people will, will freak out. Like, and I'm like, I, I, I'm, I've never really cared about that. So comfort. I, I don't, 
I don't do this work because I seek to simply comfort people. <laughs> um, the work that I do is at the end of the day, a lot of it, a lot of motherfuckers gonna be uncomfortable and that's fine. It just is what it is. Like, so that's originally where I ended up coming up to kind of like fusing these things together. Cause it came, cause I remember um, it was kind of like something almost, almost practically random. Like that I came up with, I was like, the boys meet Darwin, I was like, and I wrote it down immediately. <laughs> but that's pretty much something that I think is at the core, is, it, it really was at the core of so much of what I was really interested in understanding because there's so many components of our general concepts and understandings of what we think is evolution and uh, in how we believe it works. And at the same time, Du Bois was providing a very dynamic and uh, uh, systems thinking kind of framework that was similar to that before the social sciences because truth be told, I mean, the whole point is that these things are theories of change, dynamics and interactions. And that's the similarity between the two of them. Because um, one of the things that I um, talked about in the dissertation early on to kind of like ground the, the discussion about why am I even talking about this is just, well, if you look at Du Bois's definition of a social problem, which he presents in the 1898 paper that was uh, in a political sciences and social sciences uh, journal, is quite similar to what La uh, Richard Lewontin uh, says is the one of the main and important founding components of the significance of Darwinian evolutionary thinking and the, what they refer to as the Darwinian revolution. The significance was not in his theory about natural selection. What Darwin did is provide, he provided a materialist theoretical framework and grounding in reality or a concept and understanding of life that was predominantly metaphysical prior to that point. It was a materialistic view that that was the Darwinian revolution. That is what his work provided. People had to actually start looking at actual shit, like people whose parents are whom, like getting the teeth and understanding different components, like the difference between, for instance, a uh, a genealogy versus uh, like a, a typical genealogy versus a genetic genealogy. These things are not the same. I was really excited about the project and I really did enjoy really doing it. I feel like it's something I'm gonna, in a number of different ways, gonna be doing over and over again and refining forever. But <laughs> yeah, it's something that I'm really glad I got the opportunity to do because one of the things that it also does at the same time is helps people have a grander and larger conceptualization and understanding of the fact that there were a lot of ideas that Black scholars were playing around with. They were trying to use whatever resource they could to understand what was going on in the world. And that's something I think is really significant about Du Bois because basically it was his work, his foundational work that demonstrated, well, this ain't got nothing to do with biology, bro. Y'all just killing people. That's what this is. Like, how do you not expect somebody to die when you starve them to death, I don't get it. I want to turn to the present day and specifically an interview that you had with Danielle Maya Banks uh, inquiring about how we can deconstruct 
how racism perpetuates health disparities in Black communities. And one of the things you said that um, is, if we want to understand how and why people racialize as Black and Indigenous lead more morbidity and mortality rates across the United States, we need to understand what is happening to Black Indigenous peoples and how they are being treated, whether they live, what kind of resources they have access to. As a uh, scholar, how do you think decolonization or to what extent does decolonization can play a role in um, counteracting some of the health disparities that we see playing out today? Well, it's central to it. It's central to it. And this is something that I have talked about in a number of different um, ways. I've spoken about it to some extent in some guest lectures earlier this year, and I've talked about it with my students. Because at the end of the day, for me, I think the most important thing for us to kind of try to make sense of when we see the general problem of racism and racialization and settler colonialism, and we talk about decolonization, which will basically be the abolition of race and racism and of uh, Europe, Europe, like European colonization and these different systems of exploitation, what, what does that require? What is needed? It's the same, it's the exact same thing that's needed for black and indigenous people to be healthy. You need to return what you stole. And there are three different ways that you can return what you sell that I can think of very easily, quickly. Return the land, redistribute the resources because you stole those and reparations. All of those things are returning what has been stolen. That is how you begin the process. And that is only but a beginning. So it's one of the, one of the things I take into consideration is that that actually core comp a core component to our fight for liberation, at the center of that is our quality of life. If you pay close attention to all of the different things that we know for a, fa uh, for a fact, Black people are affected by it. For instance, when I talked to my students about this in class, I was like, okay, so what do we know for a fact? What are the basic uh, needs that every human requires for a good quality of life. You need good quality and affordable food. You need access to clean water. You need clothing, shelter, good quality shelter, uh, free and good quality healthcare. You, you need electricity, heat and air conditioning. You need internet. You need free education at all levels. Most of, and, and the thing is, is that if you pay close attention to the things that I named, every single one of those things one way or another is directly connected to uh, the general five hostile environmental factors that we know threaten health and, and the human health and life. Food deprivation, temperature stress, predators, toxins, and pathogens. If you provide all of those other things, well, you, there's going to, there's not gonna be the, the same kind of conditions. People aren't going to be experiencing the same things. Because at the end of the day, for instance, we talk about, uh, often talk about, uh, people talk about the, you know, the uh, racist and patriarchal wage gap, but I don't think they truly understand the context of it. So, um, so according to the U.S. Census from the ACS three-year estimates in 2013, Black women in the United States, on average, make 64 cents on the white male dollar. So every time a black, a black, a white man make a dollar, a black woman making 64 cents for doing the same amount of labor, if not more. 
that adds up. So by the end of that that calendar year, that black woman has been has had nineteen thousand three hundred ninety nine dollars stolen from her in that one year. And almost twenty G's could do make a big damn difference in the life of a black person. Anybody, twenty G's is a fucking lot. And at the same time, just for context. Let's just think about like uh, black and Latino neighborhoods in the United States pay 4% more on their food than suburban residents. So we spend more on things we need to survive. And then added on to that, if we wanted to look at what that $19,399 really looks like, it's the equivalent to 153 weeks worth of food. That's 2.9 years worth of food or 21 months worth of rent. Now the rent one is, is significant as well in a number of different ways. Why? Because you think about, well, uh, Black women are evicted at the same rate that Black men are incarcerated. It, it kind of reminds me of, the situ- for instance, the situation of the young teenager, the Black girl who was killed by police in Makaya Ohio. Makaya Bryant. Makaya Bryant. Bryant. She ended up in the, the child welfare system because her grandmother was evicted. If her grandmother had access to that $19,399 for every year she's ever worked, the law, you see what I'm saying? That would have never happened. She'd still be here. And these are the things that people we don't that people don't always take into consideration. Uh, and, and this is when I'm talking like when, when we talk about decolonization, it's, a, it's decolonization is not simply theoretical. It is a material phenomenon. It is based on transforming the material world, which begins with returning what you stole, and that is one of the biggest problems that we have. Because people want to act like decolonization is diversity. That's not what I asked you for. Slavery was diverse. I didn't ask you for diversity. <laughs> That's not, I don't know, I didn't ask for inclusion either. We're included and we didn't ask to be here. Inclusion has, you have to have a conversation about on what terms, to what end. I don't want that. I'm not interested because that's not freedom. So, one of the things I've come to realize that that's central to the fight for uh, decolonization and for liberation period for racialized and colonized peoples, it, the base of it is our well-being. And I always try to go back to the, the, the basic materials, the material facts. My godfather used to always say this um, when he was, when I was uh, learning about different organizing tactics and stuff in uh, late in undergrad, early in grad school. You say you always provide the people with what they need. You make sure people got food. You make sure you got a way to make sure people can get transportation, get them bus tokens, whatever the hell we need to do, or give them a ride. You have to meet the needs of the people at the end of the day. And that's what matters the most. Because at the end, like the every component of what we think about of what racism does as an environmental framework and is an ecological structure. It creates zones of, of war and death. Where, for instance, um, there was an article that was published last year by um, Shell et al. in Science on ecological and evolutionary consequences of systemic racism in the urban environments. And one of them, they talked about a number of different factors of what they found based based on uh, basically just looking at neighborhood racial composition as a predictor for social ecological patterns. Um, in urban areas, and it's a greater, it's a stronger predictor uh, than wealth is. And they found that exposure to particulate matter 
in cities like Los Angeles, Phoenix, and throughout North Carolina increased for racial and ethnic minority groups, especially Black and Latinx and Native American populations. The ge geographic distribution of urban heat islands and tree canopy cover in cities is also stratified by race. Once again, temperature stress. Uh, like, so we've, we already hit, already hit two, pathogens, and pathogens, toxicants, and, and temperature stress. That's three. And just naming two things. And differential pollutant exposure extends to aquatic systems. For example, you know, the example they use is actually uh, the Flint River of uh, Flint River in Michigan. Mm -hmm. So um, we didn't practically just hit all five of those hostile environmental factors. So what racism is doing is increasing not only the length of the exposure and the chance of exposure, the intensity of the exposure to these hostile environmental factors, it's increasing it, but most importantly, like at the end of the day, it's not just simply, it's creating, it is a hostile environmental factor. This is what's killing people. They're just doing it indirectly. And it, it, it looks quite innocent when you can't see hands involved in it quite directly. And what that is, is just, that's, bureauc that's bureaucracy more than anything else. One final question is, are there any upcoming events or things that you'd like to announce or how can people support your work? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, for right now, um, most of what I'm really, really trying to focus on doing is uh, depositing. And then uh, besides that, I'm just trying to get back into writing, uh, get into a, a good sort of writing groove um, for myself to kind of just do some more uh, general pieces um, that are more accessible. To, to people who aren't in academe. So, but if you're interested in that and in supporting my work, uh, you can check out my website, decolonizeallthethings.com, as well, I, I also have a Patreon uh, page, if you're interested in that, where you basically have access to a number of things with regards to my notes, reading lists and stuff, some of the stuff that I've read and my thoughts on the things that I was reading and reviewing, et cetera. So, and I, I'm, I can't wait to deposit so that I can take a deep breath and sleep a little bit longer than usual, maybe. And then <laughs> finally get to, to write anything that I just want to, well, I want to write at the end of the day. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. Thank you again for joining me on the Decolonization yeah. of Action podcast. Thanks. <laughs>